for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Every week we come to you with the healthcare information that you need so you'll be armed with the information necessary to advocate for yourself in the world of healthcare. We're brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Our foundation and our show are based on two principles, and that is the doctor-patient relationship and healthcare freedom. And we try to arm you with that information so you'll be able to advocate for you and your family and your own healthcare freedom. I will ask you to please go to our website, www.d4pcfoundation.org. That's d4pcfoundation.org. And just take, have, have a, a, a little uh, tour of our, of our website. Look around, educate yourself, but most importantly, if you agree with the things that we're doing, if you support the efforts that we're making, especially this show, please support us financially because we cannot continue to do what we're doing without your help. <clears throat> Today, we are going to uh, uh, do a very interesting show. I've got at my, uh, at my console my producer and co-host, Dr. Mike. Hey, Al. Good to see you. Thanks for uh, coming, Elizabeth. Good to hear. Have you? Thanks for having me. Our guest today is a uh, resident of mine. I have a day job other than doing uh, the the doctor's lounge and other than my work with Docs for Patient Care, and that is as a uh, pediatric urologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, much to my absolute, utter delight and uh, surprise, one of my residents happens to actually agree with the things that we talk about and, and advocate and fight for. And, and I, um, she's, she was uh, new on our urology team at the Children's Hospital, and when we were on call together one, one uh, weekend, I do what I often do, which is to learn a little bit about my residents. Many of them already know about me. They talk among themselves, and they know what a, a crazed lunatic I am. So <laughs> they, they uh, come with, uh, with information about me, but not I about them. And so we, we uh, started talking, and I realized after just a couple of minutes that, uh, that this was a young woman who um, really – espouse all the ideals that that we that we uh, fight for and and talk about on a regular basis and it was when I said uh, we talked about uh, things of her life story and she said asked me if I ever heard of the Benjamin Rush Institute that my jaw hit the ground I had to pick it up off the ground and compose myself and and uh, we had a great a little breakfast uh, meeting that lasted over two hours, and it was just delightful. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with her today. So, Elizabeth Wendell, thank you for joining us in the Doctor's Lounge. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Shears. It's an honor. Well, you know, we um, I wanted you on our show because... The things that that you and I spoke about, and by the way, I think that it's very, very courageous 
for you to be willing to speak and, and stick your neck out of the mole hole. Very few people want to do that. And, and um, I think it's very important. Dr. Mike and I certainly do this on a regular basis, and, and it is important for young doctors to um, really uh, uh, take up arms and take up uh, the mantle from us older guys because this is all about, about you and about patients and about the future. And when we spoke, the things that you and I spoke about, and I want you to share, Elizabeth, were things that we talk about on this show regularly, like the Benjamin Rush Institute, VA healthcare, um, the um, ideology that prevails in medical stu- medical schools and uh, and in residency training programs, and how hard it is to break away from the lemmings that that uh, seem to be out there. So, Elizabeth, why don't you, um, let's share your story. Where are you from? Sure. My father's in the military, so I moved around a lot growing up. I was born in Hawaii, and since I've lived abroad in Japan, I've lived in the Northeast, I've lived in uh, the Southwest, I've lived in the Southeast and the Midwest, so almost everywhere except for the Northwest. Um, I went to college out in California, and then I went to medical school in Boston. So Why don't you tell Boston, us the institutions you went to, because they're very impressive. Oh, thank you. Uh, I was at Stanford for undergrad and Harvard for medical school. So Harvard for medical school had to be a little bit of a challenge, wasn't it? It was it was both a challenge and a great opportunity. I mean, I, I can't say enough about the the education, the opportunities provided for me there. Um, but you know, taking the perspective that we've been talking about, especially on this show, I think that um, there were definitely some limitations as far as um, providing a balanced viewpoint on healthcare policy in particular, and that's where I think the Benjamin Rush Institute uh, really opened my eyes and uh, was a really good outlet um, to be able to explore those areas um, like free enterprise and the doctor-patient relationship um, and private options that, you know, were not routinely um, discussed in in the classroom setting and were often discouraged from being discussed in, in those settings. So... Benjamin Rush Institute, you were the president of the Benjamin Rush Institute chapter at Harvard, weren't you? Yes, I was co-president, but yes. So so tell us about um, the Benjamin Rush Institute, your, your work with them, your relationship, mm-hmm. how you heard about them, and, and how did that impact you? How did it impact the students at Harvard? Uh, so I first heard about the the institute through a an upperclassman who actually ended up doing a fellowship through the Heritage Foundation, and we were just talking about healthcare policy and you know a more conservative viewpoint. And I was just expressing to him that I felt like I was probably one of the few people there who who felt that way. And he actually um, was very encouraging and said that there there are more people than I thought who who shared some similar viewpoints. And then he connected me with a mentor, actually a urologist, um, who also was conservative. And actually that mentor is the reason I'm in urology now. Um, and then... Can you share who that was? Sure. Michael O'Leary. Um, he works at the Brigham. He's He's fantastic and just a kind 
you know, wonderful man. Um, and so he invested a lot of time in me. He, he wasn't, you know, involved with Benjamin Rush Institute, but it was something that, um, he and that other, that, that, um, upperclassmen had mentioned to me. And I went to some of their events as a first year and I, I really enjoyed them. And then I decided that I wanted to become more involved with the group. Um, and that's how I, I, um, ended up in that leadership role. And, uh, the, the the great part about the Benjamin Rush Institute is that, you know, the idea isn't to push a political ideology. The idea is to open up discussion, especially in the medical school setting, um, where both viewpoints or, or any viewpoint can be discussed in an open forum and and can stand or fall based on its merits. And it, it provides an opportunity for students to express their opinions, to do research and to participate in debates, um, and just to open up discussion in a way that is not, um, it doesn't happen that much in a classroom setting. And so with the, the, the Institute, um, at Harvard, the Harvard chapter, we would often host debates. Uh, we'd have panelists come in. We would get, um, experts to come in and speak with us. Economists, one of the, um, the mentors of the group was Neil Minkoff, and he does a lot of stuff with um, economics, and so he provided a unique perspective. But it was just a really great chance to really learn about all the different viewpoints surrounding healthcare policy, um, free free market um, principles, um, and medical ethics in a way that just wasn't being presented uh, in the classroom. Did you learn anything from that experience, Elizabeth? I did. I, I, I really learned. I learned a lot. I learned um, a lot about, you know, some of the challenges with socialized medicine. I learned about things that you know professors had kind of preached as gospel. You know, um, when you when you are a student in a classroom and the the mentality is that any opinion other than very socialized or extremely government. Um, involved medicine is inherently unethical or um, unrealistic uh, or, or, or selfish or selfish exactly you know and when that's being told to you you don't f- you don't feel comfortable expressing other opinions you don't you don't um, feel comfortable to explore what that actually even looks like you know and have a healthy debate or conversation about it you know because I, I think that's something that's that was just really missing and that that's a void that the the institute filled and what was great is at these events it wasn't just conservative students that would come um i had some friends who were uh very much you know fans of the affordable care act who um were definitely leaning on the other side of the spectrum and they came and they were really happy that they went because they were like you know i learned something today about you know privatized medicine about you know some of the issues with the affordable care act that i wasn't even thinking about and and i think that's that's a good definition of success it's not that we're trying to convert people to thinking a certain way it's just to allow good healthy discussion because i think that's when the best solutions come in and and it seems like it seems like that is is um almost becoming a um, a rarer event, open discussion, and we're mm-hmm. we're really um, seeing that kind of discussion shut down mm-hmm. on campuses all over the country. It, to your knowledge, is the um, is is the discourse that you got to experience still possible given given the political climate that we're seeing right now? I think it's possible. I think it's 
definitely a challenge. And I think, you know, as someone who was a, who was a student, you feel like you have less power in the, in the dynamic. So, you know, you don't want to say something that would go against popular, popular opinion against what your professors say. Um, and so I think that there's, there's, um, you know, a, a real, uh, you're really de-incentivized to, to bring up these topics. So, um, you know, I, I think it's possible, and I think that the way that it would become possible is for people in leadership who th- who think on both ends of the of the spectrum. You know, I'm not I'm not just saying one or the other, but would make an environment that is open to discussion um, for people that have opposing viewpoints. And that's know? what this show is all about: open discussion. And and I think that uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what uh, lessons our young doctor here, Elizabeth Wendell, has learned so far when we come back into the doctor's lounge. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us Every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. Um, Our guest today is one of my residents, and I'm so delighted to have her here today, Elizabeth Wendell, who is a... um, a shining star and a uh, young up-and-coming urologist, a conservative, and she's sharing with us um, what the challenges are that she has had to encounter being a young conservative doctor and how um, she's coping and and, uh, overcoming obstacles that have stood in her way. And she's been the uh, we were talking in the last segment about her experience at Harvard Medical School as the co-president of the Benjamin Rush Institute there, and um, and uh, she she really had uh, some some great insight about what Benjamin Rush actually means to the students in the medical schools. So so this is a big shout out to uh, Beth Haynes, one of our board members, and, ben, and the work of Benjamin Rush, and, uh, and my, my uh, hope that listeners will also go to their website and support them. Um, Elizabeth, 
you know, one question that I have, and I've heard this from other um, young doctors involved in Benjamin Rush, that they had experienced some um, some turbulence, some some blowback from their involvement in Benjamin Rush. One young woman at I think I believe it might have been Wake Forest was uh, was uh, harassed by her uh, dean um, and by her um, by the uh, uh, person who was uh, writing the letters for residency. So, so uh, you know, this, this does not, the, the involvement of young doctors is, does not come without some peril and potential cost. Had you experienced anything like that at Harvard? I must say, you know, I have to give my institution credit as far, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, there's a, definitely a majority opinion, um, but the university itself actually provided funds and um, was very open to having the group on campus. And, um, you know, was a, the, the, a lot of our, all, all of our events were university sponsored or medical school sponsored. So I didn't feel any blowback or pushback from the, the administration. I think it definitely ruffled some feathers of certain faculty and I think some you know, of my colleagues, because it was a very, un- a lot of the things that were dis- discussed were, you know, unpopular opinions. Um, one thing that, they, that I think to help, you know, alleviate the potential, you know, consequences from the faculty um, was that we made all of our events open and inclusive to everybody. And we actually got decent participation from people um, who were, who were liberal or people who did not believe in, you know, privatized healthcare, people who, who were really big proponents of the Affordable Care Act. And so we had a lot of participation from the other side. I don't know. I think some of it was definitely to come to try to pick fights or, you know, or to try to kind of agitate the waters. And, but I think a lot of the majority of the people who came from the other side of the aisle were really genuinely interested because it was just such a unique thing that just was not voiced at, at Harvard Medical School, you know. And so I think I was fortunate to not experience you know, something like that, that, that woman you were telling me about, that, that's awful and, and that's, that's really unfair. But I, I think the reality is when you hold an opinion um, that's not um, popular, especially in, in, you know, more liberal academic institutions, there is definitely a cost. And, you know, I think it's challenging for a young person who's in that position to really balance, you know, what risks are okay to take for the, you know, if that dean is writing their letter, that definitely plays into it. And it's unfortunate because I love free speech and I, I don't think that it should be stifled, especially in a, in a school setting where it's about learning and thinking about the different options and really understanding both sides of an argument. But, I must say, I, I personally, you know, aside from just some, you know, comments and some colleagues who I know just really didn't agree with me, um, the institution itself was uh, was actually surprisingly supportive. Good to, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. That was that was. I think that was Doctor Mike's question. That was going to be my question. Was, you know, number one, were they aware that you were there? And number two, you know, how much how much abuse did you get? Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's heartening to hear. That uh, that even at the the top of the Ivy League that uh, that, that you had an, a, a, some chance to express yourself, so mm-hmm. that's encouraging. And I think a lot of it had to do with you know the faculty mentors, um, b- 
being involved and kind of being that first level of defense. But I, I know at some medical schools in some places across the country, the students who run it, that's, you know, they're, it's them against everyone else in the, in the administration and they're trying to do it alone. So I think as advice to anyone who's trying to start a chapter or who has a chapter to really get the faculty that think that have aligned thinking with yours to, to, um, be an advocate for you because they're at a more senior level and can really make a difference. So there's a testimonial right there. Anybody who is a doctor out there who um, would like to try to help sponsor medical students and help get a uh, chapter started in your institution, in your city, there are medical students who are hungry for this kind of support and help. So I can't... Uh, echo what Elizabeth said more, and it would be very important for students out there to uh, reach out, and, and if you're listening to this, and, and uh, I, I uh, understand that there are medical students who do listen to this, don't be afraid to, uh, to uh, stick your neck out a little bit and, and uh, try to make a difference. I think you'll, you'll actually be rewarded more than you can possibly imagine. Absolutely. So let's change gears a little bit, Elizabeth. You had mentioned to me before, and you brought it up a little while ago, about your family's military um, background. Your your dad was active duty throughout your childhood. Your yes. grandfather was also. Yes. Was he was he a uh, a, a, um, a an academy graduate? No, my so my father went to West Point and graduated from from there. Um, my grandfather was not okay, but um, both of them were were both were army army, mm-hmm. and um, and so so the the um, the military and in particular the veterans issues have been very important to you, haven't they? Absolutely. Um, you did work in when you what were you were, were you an undergraduate or were you in medical school when you took this on so in was, in my undergraduate um career was when i when i when i did work with an organization called united students for veterans health and initially i just went volunteering and, and it was done at the palo alto va and i would just sit with uh, veterans, most of them were, you know, had Alzheimer's, dementia, and just needed someone to kind of sit there and talk with them and, um, you know, just volunteer my time that way. And then uh, as I spent more time with the group, I really became involved uh, with some of the, the, the local regional events. Um, and then um, in my junior year, I became president of the national organization um, after doing being the president of the Stanford chapter for a year. And I just, I can't uh, say enough about what that experience did for me as a person, as a physician, um, as the daughter of a veteran, as an American citizen. I mean, um, I actually, and also in high school, I went to uh, Walter Reed and did um, some a trip to D.C. where it was focused on uh, veterans' health issues. So that was kind of my first taste into it. And when I was younger, I used to go to um, nursing homes and where there were a lot of veterans and would do music and stuff like that. So for me, volunteering with veterans has been kind of a lifelong passion of mine. But in college, I really started to see the policy aspects of it. Um, and I realized that there's um, a lot of... Uh, veterans who are extremely underserved in this country. And it's really unfortunate because these are men and women who have given so much to our country. And, you know, it's just, it's, 
it's quite sad, you know, this the state of affairs for these veterans, especially recent returnees from Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and you know, it doesn't stop there. You have you have older vets who have different types of issues with the system, navigating the system. Um, and, and, you know, those those veterans also face unique challenges. And I think there's just a lot of room for improvement on, you know, from the provider side, from the, the VA side, from the government side. And I just I think there's just a lot of work that, that could be done and should be done um, to help our veterans. You're such a slacker, Elizabeth, the <laughs> president of your chapter, the president, national president. I just wish you would, uh, you know, really try to be a little bit more active and involved. Oh, <laughs> Honestly, it's just something I really loved doing, and I took it on as something that was a privilege. I, I really feel lucky and blessed to have been able to to serve in that capacity, and I, it was it was a really life changing experience for me. Well, now you're in your residency mm-hmm. and you are involved once again with veterans and yes. veterans health. Yes. You're um, in your residency, a, a large part of your residency and actually everybody's residency in a major city involves uh, experiences working at the VA hospital. Correct. And um, has, that, uh, has that made your passion for VA health and uh, veterans uh, issues um, even more intense or has it uh, waned tell me tell me how that, how that has how that has um, become enmeshed in in your thinking well you know I I definitely would say it's made my feelings more intense uh, I feel l- like I have a lot less power to do anything to to change and you know, to affect change on the levels that I would like to. You know, in college we could do events and I could you know volunteer and set up you know things for for college age students. But as a resident, I think it's a little bit more challenging. Um, and this is, I think, a bipartisan issue. You know, I think if you interviewed every single resident from my program, you'd probably get similar responses. Um, you know, at the VA, there's just so many systemic issues. Um, one is just the wait time for veterans is unbelievably bad. I mean, you could have a clinic seeing 60 patients and veterans can be waiting up to four or five hours I've even seen. Um, and these are not patients that live down the street. These are patients who have come from three, four, five hours away. Um, some of them don't have transportation. Um, you know, it's just the VA is just rife with problems. I won't get into the choice program, but, you know. Well, we don't want to get you into any trouble, and I don't want you to speak about things that um, that can come back to uh, hurt you actively uh, still in, in uh, training at the VA hospital. But I'd like to touch on a couple of things about Veterans Health, VA uh, care, and uh, and the future um, when we get back in the next segment in the Doctors' Lounge, so stay tuned. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We've got all all three of us here in the studio today, both hosts. You got me, Dr. K, you got Dr. Hal, and very special guest. Um, a graduate of Harvard Medical School. Uh, and we're having some really great conversations about what experience uh, as a young doctor is like in the current age and uh, so this is rare and precious stuff that we're getting today so i'm going to hand this back over to dr hal and dr elizabeth and uh and stay quiet thanks dr mike it's been uh, a really excellent uh show today we've had some great conversation great insights that we've uh learned um and uh we're going to continue talking about uh, the experiences at the va and uh and what what uh what what is wrong with VA care in in this country coming from someone who's actually currently in the trenches? You know, when we talk about VA healthcare on this show, we're basically dredging up the experiences that we had when we were young doctors in training. But what is just absolutely astonishing and really quite disturbing is that nothing has changed in 40 years and um, and despite the the appearances that there have been changes for the positive nothing positive has changed and one of the one of the great um, uh, misdirections or lies is what the attempts to give veterans better care with the CHOICE program, allowing them care outside the VA. Elizabeth, will you tell the, um, the people who are listening today um, what that is all about and, sure. and what some experiences that you've heard happening around the country regarding this program? Sure. So, you know, at a really basic level, the CHOICE program is a program um, that allows veterans to go outside the VA for care there's certain stipulations, one of which is, you know, if, if they can't get on a surgery schedule, I'll use surgery as an example, if they need surgery, they can't get on our surgery schedule because it's booked out so far. I, usually it's a 30-day, I think, is um, what the limit is. Um, if they can't get in within 30 days, they're allowed to go out and seek surgery somewhere else. Um, also, if, if there's too long of a wait in clinic, they can, uh, like weeks-wise, um, if they can't get it in time, they're allowed to go see a private doctor or a different, go to a different hospital, and the, the VA supposedly covers that um, for the patient. 
in theory, I think it's great. You know, it gives veterans a choice to be able to seek their care elsewhere, especially given the long wait times and the, you know, the, we don't want patients waiting for surgeries that need them. Um, but in practicality, I think that's where it breaks down. So, you know, often in clinic, I'll see patients who um, opt for the choice program, but then they come bouncing back to us four, five, six months later, telling us that they tried to get a hold of the choice program and no one picked up. Or they tried calling choice five or six times, they got through, but then they were never scheduled for their outside appointment. Or they were scheduled for their outside appointment, they got to that doctor's office, and that doctor had no idea of their records, what their history, or what what, what was going on with them, and there's no way for that the VA in that doctor's office to communicate in a way that's easy for a patient to navigate. And then the patient ends up you know, getting sent back to the VA for either records or for um, a repeat workup that they've already had, or they get the whole thing done, a whole, you know, new diagnostic workup done at the outside hospital, and then they get sent back saying that they need surgery for the thing that we sent them out for surgery to begin with. And so, you know, it's extremely frustrating for the patients. It's dangerous for the patients. I'm in urology, so one thing that we see often is bladder cancer, and it's a very time-sensitive issue. And so the CHOICE program is supposed Supposed to schedule these patients within 30 days. And often, you know, you see patients who don't get seen by a doctor within 30 days and they come back and their tumors have grown. Um, and it's, it's a really big issue. And the pro- another problem and a frustration from a resident perspective is that once a patient was assigned a choice or they've opted for choice, there's no recourse for us to be able to um, schedule that. It's a whole different scheduling department. If I could, I would sit on the phone and get these patients, you know, appointments at whatever, whatever you know, physician's office that they're trying to get connected with. But the the system itself is set up so separately that it's impossible for uh, a provider on that where is working at the VA to be able to successfully get that patient scheduled with a specific oh, doctor. Hold on, wait. Mm-hmm. I just got I, I have to get clarification. Sure, this, sure. Because this is this is absolutely out, it, it's just mind-boggling mm-hmm. to me. You're you're telling, you know, some of my fondest experiences as a trainee were at the VA hospital. I mm-hmm. love those guys. They were the best patients and and I think Dr. Mike would probably echo that Ab- that same absolutely. feeling. Mm-hmm. And and we used to the, the the veterans loved the residents, oh, and, yeah. and and they would bring us things, and and vice versa. We loved the, the yeah. patients. They 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 gave us more than we gave them many Absolutely. times. Absolutely. Oh yeah. So you're telling me that these patients who become your friends, you are you are you're prohibited once they sign up for the choice program from being their advocate and getting them care on the outside. It's, there's not a channel to be able to do that. So we were told that when, when someone signs up for choice, there's a whole separate scheduling office that they must go through. It's no longer through the VA's urology department scheduling office. So, you know, much to our attendings credit and to the chief resident's credit, what we ended up doing because we had so many bounce backs from failed, I call them failed choicers, but like patients who, um, the choice system really let them down. Um, we would actually start calling any patient that we saw that we knew had 
bladder cancer to make sure that they ended up at their choice appointment. And if they didn't, what we ended up doing is overbooking them, you know, getting them back in. We'd have days where there's something called a cystoscopy clinic, which is where you look inside the bladder and make sure tumors look fine. Um, it's a really rudimentary explanation. But um, we would actually have days where we'd be doing 20, 30 cystos on a day that's supposed to have 13 because we didn't want these patients to be lost. And so we kind of circumvented the choice program, but that's not how it is by design. And I can imagine if other departments, you know, were just going by the book and the rules that, you know, that may not have happened. That's, you know? But that's unbelievable because there's not just urology, but there's ENT and mm-hmm. there's orthopedics and pulmonary and cardiology and and GI. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And if the residents can't be the advocates for the patients, then what good is the system? The system is not serving these patients. And if anybody is listening who has the ability to, to interface in VA care, this to me, is a nine one one. Absolutely. I, you know what infuriates me about this story is not only the fact that you know this this program is not succeeding, but what little success it may enjoy is once again right. And again, nothing's changed in one or two generations. Is the the few successes they have are because of the superhuman efforts of people like you, Elizabeth, and and uh-huh. the stuff that we did you know a couple of generations ago, and that you know somewhere. Uh, in this country, some politician is on the stump bragging about the choice program, uh, not because, you know, and it's what little success is because it works. It's because, again, it's, it, it, it always falls on the docks to fix it. Correct. You know, and, and I think for, for me, it just as from a personal perspective, as someone who went to school to try to help people to provide, you know, a skill to these veterans, um, it's it's especially disheartening because this patient population is very unique. You know, a lot of a lot of the veterans that I interact with at the VA um, have been through a lot in their lives. You know, you know they don't all come from you know, the highest socioeconomic status, and um, a lot of them have are dealing with real psychological issues as a re- result of serving our country in war, um, you know, homelessness, drug addiction is also a problem. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of these patients aren't able to advocate for themselves in a way that I, that, 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 um, I think is helpful. You know, they, 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 these vets are trying very, very hard and it's unfortunate that the system is failing them because, you know, they need an advocate and and it's a very vulnerable patient population and if they're the, the most grateful patients i've ever had and so you know what happens when these a lot of these patients come back after being missed by choice they're like oh i'm sorry i must have done something wrong or they say oh i guess it's okay they must have been busy and i'm like no it's not okay yeah. you know you're like you need this care and we're sorry that it happened this way you know so these are some of the most understanding grateful humble patients and it's just a shame that they get treated this way. The stories break your heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this this um, is is a system that has been broken for over over fifty years, over sixty years. I mean, longer longer than I um, have experience in the VA. It was broken when I got there, and mm-hmm. it's still broken. And I think that a big part of the problem is that once you are at the VA, even if you try to do things as a resident, the residents love working for the patients. If you try to do something, you're reprimanded 
by people who are lifetime employees at the VA, oh, and yes. then you are then you're you're call, you're you're basically called on the carpet by a hospital administrator. Absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes it the whether it's intentional or not. I think there's very obstructionist tendencies, especially from you know lifetime staff or or some of the. Um, I'll use the OR as an example. Um, there was a patient, I was on a vascular service, who was in critical um, condition, was likely going to lose a limb if we didn't get him to the OR quickly enough. And, you know, my thinking was, let me get this patient up. It was I had a, I, He was in the emergency room, and the thing holding him to the OR was that he needed to be wheeled up to the OR. And... I mean, I don't really know exactly what the protocol was, but I was like, I'm going to wheel this patient to the OR because it was taking too long, and I didn't want this patient to lose his limb. So I got the patient up to the OR, and the first thing that I was told was, you're not allowed to do that. That's, you know, against our protocol. And so what I told them was like, well, if I wait any longer, this guy's arm's going to fall off. So, you know, but it's just that mentality. It's not about let's do what's best for this patient. It's let's make sure we follow all you know, protocol that may or may not be relevant in a certain situation. And sometimes it's not even protocol. Sometimes I'm told that things are protocol. And then I ask them for, for example, nursing staff where that is in writing and they can't provide it because it's not true. And I, you know, stuff like that is just really just dangerous for patients. You know, when I was, you know, back when I was your boy, (laughs) (laughs) in in my day, there was even among the, the full time staff, there was this, this horrible cultural, sort of underpinning that that the patient was the enemy oh absolutely that this was not you know that we weren't here for the patients the patients weren't inconvenienced i mean you still kind of feel that i can't tell you how many times i've heard on service from you know nursing unfortunately nursing staff is that's not my job or you know you know radiology um techs or you know when i'm trying to get a stat image it's just it's just very difficult and you have to be very proactive about you know doing what's right for the patient you know we it's, it's we're going to wrap this up elizabeth in the next segment i just want to get a couple of closing thoughts about veteran care before we close out the show so stay with us for the last segment in the doctor's lounge affordable health insurance was the promise of obamacare But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. 
Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today. And if you have enjoyed this show as much as we've enjoyed putting it on, go to the website, www.d4pcfoundation.org, and give some something. You can give Five bucks, you can give ten bucks, you can give ten thousand bucks. But really, we need your financial support. We need your um, your help. We need you to tell your friends about how important this show is and and what what um, absolute gold we're providing, uh, putting this show on and uh, sharing with you the the stuff that doctors actually really talk about among themselves in doctors' lounges all around the country. Um, Elizabeth, you know, I've said um, for years, and I wrote an article in the Wall, that appeared in the Wall Street Journal a few years back called Doctors War Stories from the VA. <laughs> and I collected them from a number of my friends who, like you, trained at the VA, and the stories haven't changed. It's just absolutely just, uh, you know, uh, un- unbelievable, un- inconceivable that, that nothing has changed over all these years. And so, you know, many of us who follow VA matters believe that the VAs should be shut down. You know, President Trump has been very uh, pro-military, pro-veteran, but I don't think he gets it. He's not understanding the issues. He said we got to keep those VA hospitals open and really, you know, beef them up. I don't think that it's possible to beef it up. It is basically a patient that is on life support or a patient with terminal cancer. It can't be saved. I think that the veterans need to be given the promise that they were made when they signed up for military service that the country would take care of them when they were done. And that means getting rid of the acute care facilities and turning them into long-term care facilities, mental health facilities, and nursing homes. What say you? I completely agree. I think, you know, in theory, the VA is a wonderful concept. You know, take care of our veterans. You know, have this place where they can go. But the issue is... Um, I truly believe that in a lot of areas, our veterans are not getting the same standard of care as they would if they had, you know, free choice on the market. And, you know, the other side of that is that, you know, a lot of the veterans don't have any other options. But I think that's all the more reason we should be giving our veterans the best care we can in this country. And I think that, you know, 
opening it up to letting them have private insurance or, you know, funding that, that that's, I think that's a, a very well-spent investment. You know, I, you know, I don't know this, and maybe maybe Dr. Mike knows this, or maybe you do, Elizabeth, but I just wonder if the people who work at the VA hospitals are unionized. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think they enjoy so much employment protection <laughs> by virtue of being because employees of the VA. Yeah. Because I can, I can only envision that their union is keeping this from from happening because if that happened and they got out of the acute care business, then you would have people who actually would have to go out and look for a real job. True, and I think the problem too is you're, the way it's currently set up because it's not for profit and it's you know the, the 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 standard of success isn't like how many veterans can we treat and how well can we treat them the 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 staff a lot of the staff that you're talking about are incentivized to do as little work as possible and that's where the where it breaks down for me and I think you know that that's the biggest danger of the VA is people are actually incentivized to do the least amount of work possible I think Dr. Mike has an answer I, I, I think I think we've got an answer here there is uh, it's called the AFGE the American Federation of Government employees uh, is an American labor union that, that represents uh, federal employees. So there so. you go. So, so uh, this, their union that we're paying money for is in, in large part responsible for the ineptitude and neglect that we see at the VA hospitals. So just put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so, you know, Elizabeth, we, I, I, you know, we're, we're in the, in the tail part of our um, show today, and I know that speaking for Dr. Mike and myself, we've enjoyed having you on and listening to a young doctor who has her head screwed on right and sees the problems that curmudgeons like Dr. Mike and myself have... As Dr. Curmudgeon. ...have have appreciated over a lifetime of care and not been, you know, and and you you have your whole career ahead of you. So can you, can you, first of all, tell me, you know, are you, are you positive? Are you optimistic about the future, about medicine? Well, thanks for those kind words. I don't deserve those, but uh, I am extremely optimistic. I, I I think that there is so much room for improvement in the system. I think there are a lot of good people, and I think there are a lot of good people on both sides of the aisle trying to make things better. And I think, you know, um, the key to success, meaning treating patients better, um, is to to really um, have a good open dialogue. And and I think that there are a lot of these ideals that we all hold hold um, dear that we we believe are very important. And I think those if we need to be champions for those ideals. And um, you know we've just touched on a very small portion of areas uh, like the VA, for example. But if you look at something like the VA, you know yes, you can look at it like look at all these problems. But on the other side of that, look at all these people you could help. Look at these veterans that you could help by implementing policy change. And so for me, I'm very hopeful um, that, you know, our generation will take on your mantle and and advocate for, you know, um, these issues that are so important, like free enterprise, the patient-doctor relationship. You know, these, these are, you know, the free market. These are issues that our country was built upon. And I think that, you know, as a young person, um, 
about to embark on my career, you know, it's just it's just full of opportunity. That's how I look at it. How, you know? how difficult is it to undo the brainwashing that mm-hmm. medical students and residents are are confronted with on a daily basis? Yeah, I think I think it's challenging. You know, um, I I think it starts even in academia and in high school, college. You know, and I think that there's just a tendency for you know, academia to, to lean more left and, and, you know, even, even in the kind of a hospital setting, if you look at residency programs, most of them are done in academic settings. So you're, you're skewed towards that uh, mentality. And I think it's really important to understand that mentality and understand, um, you know, the arguments because, I, I want I'm, I seek truth. You know I want I want whatever it whatever solution is to stand or fall on its own merit. But so many of your colleagues don't seek truth. They, <laughs> yeah. they accept they accept without question the, what is what is fed to them. What mm-hmm. what people are telling them, and they're lazy. They don't they they do not. Um, uh, they're not they're not intellectually curious to to question whether or not what they're hearing is reality or not. They just accept it. Don't I, you find that? Well, I you know I think that I think as a student especially, it's easy to for whatever reason you know I think a lot of it is you know fear of repercussions of speaking out. Um, to really explore those areas or some people just because that's the only opinion presented and they've never, you know, been exposed to any other viewpoint kind of take that as gospel. So, you know, I think it's really important at any stage of learning to really decide for yourself after looking at the issues and making sure that you understand what is it, what it is that you stand for and why, and be able to defend that. Whether that's you fall on the left side or the right side, that, you know, I think that's less, less important, but to really understand why you stand for those things. And I think if, if you really look at why, then I think our principles kind of, (laughs) they win, but you know, that's besides the point. Um, I, I, I think too, as a resident, you know, I, I have some of the best colleagues in the world, and I would do anything for my co-residents. And I think as a resident, it's just really challenging because you are working very hard. And, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, sometimes I'm just like, I really just want to sleep and eat and shower in whatever order that happens, and I don't know. But, you know, I think as a resident, it's especially difficult. So, you know, for me, I'm optimistic that, you know, as an attending and even now as a resident, I can do what I can with the time I have um, to advocate for the issues and things that I find most important. Are you an outlier in your residency program? Uh, I think that I, I probably am. Um, but I do know that there, there are some other people in my program that, that have similar viewpoints. I just think that, you know, it's hard to be outspoken about them. And when you, when you have an opportunity to, to have open discussions with, with your, uh, co-residents, what, what are, what are some of the, the, um, the easiest, um, arguments to debunk? That, that, that they come up with is it a single payer system is it the um, the fact the, the not the fact but the the uh, dogma that the medical the American medical system is one of the worst systems in the country uh, in the world rather what what are some of the what are some of the 
arguments that you're able to sit down and and or discussions that you're able to have with them and maybe change minds, hearts and minds about. Yeah, I, I think that those are two areas that, you know, are easier to talk about because I think they become really practical really fast. You know, as a resident, you're looking for a job when you graduate. You're also, you know, you're thinking about how you're treating patients. And so a lot of those issues that were maybe theoretical and ideal, you know, certain ideals that you hold as maybe a college student or a medical student start to change more when I think you're a resident. And I found that even in in discussions with other residents that um, a lot of them actually or, you know, will have have kind of become more moderate in their view viewpoints from maybe starting out on a very you know left side um, after being a resident, being in the working environment, thinking about compensation, thinking about how they want their patients to get care and receive care. Nobody and, teaches you that th- those things in in residency, do they? No, it's it's not really something. I mean, and it's true. There's lots of work to be done, and you know, I'm sure policy and things are kind of at the back of your mind when you, when you're just trying to get through an OR day. So you know, it's it's it's. It's definitely. I think Dr. Mike wants to ask something. He's burning. <laughs> well, no, no. I was just going to throw a little bit in in the in the last minute of the program here. I think uh, Elizabeth, you, you've done your your doctor duty for the day at least a little bit because uh, if your job is to make somebody you feel better, you've made me feel better. Oh. Uh, only okay. because you know it, it's difficult from you know the perspective that Hal and I have on the universe where you know our exposure to young docs and training is limited at least mine is very limited mm-hmm. uh, to, to get a look inside the mind of somebody who is going through this right now and to, to hear sort of the level-headed way that you've put this together and sort of the non-partisan open-minded balanced way you've put this together um, is, is heartening Hal, you got the last 10 seconds Okay, thank well, you. you know what Elizabeth, I'm going to give it to you I want to thank you for being here and I hope that you'll come back and, and share some of your experiences and thoughts. Thank you so much for having me, it's been a true honor and I'd love to come back anytime you'd have me well, This th- is the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio 